Well, we finished our study in First and Second Thessalonians last time. We made our way through it, and uh, we're still here, so the rapture of the church hasn't taken place. Of course, if you look around, it looks pretty empty in this place today, so maybe the dead in Christ do rise first. Just kidding. But we're going to embark on a different book, obviously, today, and I've chosen the book of Acts. We haven't done the book of Acts in this setting for about 12 years, I think, has been. So it's time. It's a good book to be in, especially in these last days, because really what the book of Acts is, it's, it's a continuation of the Gospels, but it's more than that. It's a history of the church in those early days. The various things that the apostles did and other disciples as well as the apostles through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The church was born and it's described wonderfully well by the author of this book. The author is Luke, the physician, the friend of Paul who traveled with Paul on several of his missionary journeys. We know it's Luke because he identifies himself in a different way, not directly, but in a way that makes it very clear through his writing that it is he who has written this letter, this book, as well as the gospel that we call the Gospel of Luke. If you combine the two of those books, Luke is really one of the greatest contributors of the New Testament for us. In addition to Paul, the Apostle, Luke wrote a great deal of the New Testament. But in the Gospel of Luke, although again he doesn't identify himself by name, he writes at the beginning of this letter a very interesting statement. And I'd like you to turn first, before we get to the book of Acts, to the Gospel of Luke and read with me the first few verses of chapter 1 where he introduces that great book to an individual. That's who it was written to originally, an individual. It became part of the church doctrinal statements and the canon of Scripture. But originally it was written to this one particular man. He says in verse 1 of chapter 1 of the Gospel of Luke, these words, Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus. Now we're not sure who Theophilus was, some believe this is a pseudoname. The word itself means lover of God, phileo and theo, two Greek words combined together, God lover. It may have been the name of an individual, most likely a Greek or Roman, or it could be perhaps, as I said, a pseudoname, a name given to him to conceal his true identity. That's a possibility. Although I think it's less likely because he says most excellent Theophilus. And there's a connection that Luke has with this individual. And it's very likely history tells us, you know, at least we think that Theophilus was a wealthy man who had Luke as perhaps a slave. Luke was indeed a physician. And in those days, physicians were typically servants or slaves of wealthy landowners. So it's very, very likely, and it is, again, many scholars believe this to be the case, that Luke was a slave of Theophilus, and Theophilus released him when he became a believer and allowed Luke to travel with Paul, who quite frankly needed a physician more than pretty much anybody else around, so Luke was a companion of Paul. And it doesn't again say that Luke wrote this, but you'll find within the gospel record of Luke and also the book of Acts, some 30 plus words that are really words that physicians pretty much exclusively would use. 
So we can connect the dots here. And so understanding that Luke is identified by the Apostle Paul as the physician Luke, and that the names, although they're not mentioned in either of these two letters that we have in the New Testament, the name's obvious that it must be Luke because he alone was a physician who would have been writing these words in those two particular books that we have. So the internal evidence is, quite frankly enough, for every scholar that has any merit to agree that this was authored by Luke. So again, he writes in that first chapter that we just read in Thessalon, in, in uh, Luke's Gospel, a, a letter to Theophilus. In Acts, he also says, in verse 1 of the book of Acts, chapter 1, the former account I made, referring to the Gospel of Luke, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. So Luke is continuing his writing of the Gospel record in this particular account to the same individual and expanding on what he had shared with regard to the Gospel record and opens up for us a wonderful history of the early church. Without the book of Acts, we would be missing so much detail, so much that happened that nowhere else would we find it other than in the book of Acts. So it's a wonderful book to study and to glean from because there's so much really, really important things here. As far as the Gospels were concerned, you know, Matthew, of course, mentioned the resurrection at its closing of the great book. Mark mentioned the ascension of Jesus at the closing of his writing of the Gospel record. Luke also mentions the ascension, but he also includes a reference indirectly of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And John ends his Gospel with a mention of the second coming of Jesus. All four of those thoughts are given to us in the book of Acts in chapter 1. I'd like to break chapter 1 down in at least the section that we're going to be looking at today with three specific words that I think should stand out to us all as we study this passage together. The first word is proof. The second word is power, or rather promise. The third word is power. Proof, promise, power. That should help us to remember exactly what it is that Luke is conveying to us as we study this portion of God's Word today. Again, in Luke, we're told of the things that Jesus began to do. In Acts, we're told of the things that Jesus continues to do. Now, there are 28 verses, or chapters rather, in the book of Acts. And they end with Paul's having been in a house arrest in Rome. It's not the end of the story. We find that Paul refers to another missionary journey that he apparently had taken after that time that he was in Rome under house arrest. He apparently was released, and he must have traveled again, perhaps many believe as far west as Spain. But Luke doesn't give us all of that information. We only find pieces of that in the letters of the Apostle Paul. But what's mindful to me is the fact that Luke says Jesus here is continuing to do and teach through his apostles. And that's really one of the reasons why the book is titled by external writers the Acts of the Apostles. It may very well also be referred to as the Acts of the Holy Spirit, because certainly the Holy Spirit is definitely involved in all of that. It's also, again, the ministry of Jesus. So I suppose if you wanted a different title than the Acts of the Apostles, you might say it is a book of the works of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. Apostles. 
a rather long title, but that's basically what this book is all about. This book is a wonderful part of God's holy word, and I'm so, so very pleased to have this opportunity to spend time with you all in the study of this passage that we're looking at today. A final outline, if you will, of what we're going to be looking at over the course of time that as the Lord leads and allows, we will be doing this probably for close to a year. The first seven chapters, chapters 1 through 7, talk about the work of the Holy Spirit through the apostles in Jerusalem, primarily. Chapters 8 through about chapter 12 talk about the ministry of the church in Judea and Samaria. The remainder of the text, chapters 13 through 28, talk about the ministry of the apostles and the church throughout the entire world then known. If you think about it, the book of Acts then is inclusive of what Jesus had given for a commission to his apostles. Go ye therefore into all the world, beginning in Judea, Jerusalem rather, in Judea and Samaria and all to the uttermost parts of the world. So the book of Acts is basically an answer to the commission of Jesus Christ that he gave to his apostles as recorded in the gospel records. So we have that as an introduction. Again, we're going to be focusing on these three words, proof, promise, and power. Reading again from the beginning, chapter 1, verse 1. Again, he says, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach, until the day in which he was taken up. And after, he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs. There's the first word many infallible proofs, having been seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So, what are the proofs that Luke is referring to? Well, if you think back through maybe what you remember having read about the various appearances of Jesus Christ after his resurrection, in the gospel records we have the fact that he had appeared to his disciples, ten of them, on that first Sunday, after he was raised from the dead. Thomas did not happen to be with them. That's why there are only ten of the apostles there in that room. Prior to that encounter with his apostles in that room, which, by the way, where the doors were locked and the windows covered and there was no entrance or exit from that place, didn't happen to be a problem for Jesus. But before that time, he walked with two other disciples, appearing to them on the road to Emmaus. Remember that story in Luke's Gospel where they sat with Jesus at the end of the day and they insisted that he not leave them because it was getting late. Have a meal together. And it was then that Jesus took bread and handed it to those two disciples. And when he did so, then their hearts were opened. Their hearts were already burning with what was going on as they communed with him on the way to Emmaus. But now they apparently are able to see the wounds in his hands as he extends his hands to them to offer them the bread. And they made the connection. They connected the dots, if you will, and they saw that this was Jesus and then he just simply was gone. Same kind of experience with the ten. Again, they're behind closed doors. They're fearful of their very lives. And all of a sudden, they see a ghost. At least that's what they thought. Jesus appears in the room with them. And he had to calm them down. I'm sure they were frightened. He said, hey, it's, it's me. It's not a spirit. It's me. See? A spirit has no flesh and bone, as you see I have. Touch me, feel me, know me that I am here with you, and it is me, and no other. 
Thomas later was told, we saw Jesus. And Thomas said, hey, wait a minute. He died on the cross. I saw Him buried. I know that He's in the grave. Look, you're not going to convince me unless I actually see Him and touch Him. Okay. That happened the next week. They were gathered together, this time all eleven of the apostles. Jesus appeared again and Thomas was with them. And Jesus spoke directly to Thomas because of his reluctance to believe. And when he told Thomas, Thomas, look, put your hand in the wound of my side, the holes in my hands. See that it is me. You know what Thomas did, don't you? He fell to his knees and he spoke wonderful words of truth when he said, My Lord and my God. Because that's what Jesus is. Later on, he appeared apparently to James, his brother, half-brother James, and perhaps others as well, around the same time. He appeared to Peter privately as well. But James was converted. He was an unbeliever before the resurrection. He became a believer along with the rest of his family. We know that because he's in the upper room on the day of Pentecost, along with Mary, his mother, and his brothers and sisters, along with about 110 or so others with him, a total of 120 believers. But before that day, again, Jesus was appearing to other disciples. In fact, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that Jesus appeared to as many as 500 at one time after his resurrection. You want proof? There's plenty of proof. You know, when you count the number of witnesses that were actually able to see the resurrected Jesus, if a court case were to be had in that day, there was an overabundance of eyewitnesses and there would have been no doubt in the minds of anybody in the jury that had to have happened. And it did. Of course, the leaders of the Jews tried to convince the Jewish people of a different story. That the disciples came and took the body. There was no resurrection as far as they were concerned. They would not believe it. They would not convey that as truth. They tried to bury it along with their thoughts about Jesus Christ. But they could not. The Word of God spread so, so very fast in that region. But there was proof. Abundant proof. In our court system today, if we had just two witnesses... That would be sufficient. In a court of law, that would be sufficient to prove the veracity of the statement being made. But there are a lot of people who say, no, no, can't be. Jesus didn't really raise from the dead. In fact, I question whether there was even a Jesus ever who walked on the earth. It's just a made-up story of people who think that they want to have God as their God and no other. So they were denying all of these things and they do it constantly. It doesn't change the truth. They don't have to believe if they don't want to believe. But their unbelief does not change the truth. We have proof. The tomb is empty. And there were eyewitnesses. And it's recorded there's more written about the resurrection of Jesus Christ than almost any other human being on the earth. Ever. Napoleon doesn't have as much written about him as Jesus has. Julius Caesar does not have as much written about him as Jesus has. Hitler does not have as much written about him as Jesus has. We have proof. And the proof is substantial. And there's no reason to doubt But it requires faith. That's all. Faith in what the Word of God says. 
It's too easy for some to examine the truth. Their intellect gets in the way. I know of one individual who was a scientist. I can't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm an evolutionist. I believe in that, not a creation God. The question was asked of him, Are you a scientist? Yes, I'm a scientist. A physicist? Yes, I teach physics in college. Then why? Why what? Why do you believe in evolution? If you're a physicist, you see the evidence that's all around you that there is a Creator. You cannot deny creation if you will look at it with open eyes. Why do you believe in evolution? The physicist couldn't answer the question. Because there is no answer. I remember one lecture that I attended several years ago by a man named Michael Behe. He's a biologist. He wrote the book, Darwin's Black Box. Good book. He's not a Christian. But he gave evidence through his writing that there must be a creation. By some means, this did not happen by chance. And he breaks it down in a beautiful way. A mousetrap is a simple example of what he was trying to convey. The standard mousetrap that we have always used up until most recently when we're too afraid to kill the mice that way. It's a simple mousetrap mechanism. It's got a base, it's got a spring, and it's got a lever that releases the spring and closes the trap on the unsuspecting mouse. Three components. They all must exist in order for the trap to work. Simple. He uses that to convey another simple truth. We have enzymes, we have proteins. We have a simple cell. All three must have existed in order for the cell to function. Without the enzyme, the proteins could not be in existence. Without the proteins, there would be no enzymes. Without either of them, there would be no cell. He pointed these things out for a reason. He's saying, look, that has to have been a creation by some great creative mind. He never came out and said it's God specifically, but he lent that particular thought to everyone that was there and let them make their own conclusions. Well, he opened it up to a question and answer session at the end of his lecture. And I remember sitting in that lecture hall and there was a young lady who was just to my left in the row in front of me. She stood up and she said, what you have said, it seems so very true, but I can't believe it. Because if I believe it, I have to accept that there is a God. That's where the world stands. They've got the proof, but they don't want to believe it. How sad. Oh, we need to help them find out that this is truth that we're revealing to them. But the problem is, it requires faith. It can't be through the intellect that people receive the knowledge of Jesus Christ. It is through faith. By grace through faith, we are saved. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. We know that these things are so because instead of using our intellect, we've allowed that information to penetrate into our hearts. And that's the only difference. A distance of 18 inches between the head, brain, heart, emotion, and love of God. It has to be received. The proof is there. Many infallible proofs. I hope you've got that down. Because 
Luke is going to be talking about those many infallible proofs throughout this book. He goes on to say in verse 4, And being assembled together with them, He commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which He said, You have heard from Me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Wait for the promise. Luke says we have infallible proof. And he says, Jesus said to his disciples, I have given you a promise. What is the promise? The promise is recorded for us in John's Gospel especially. It's a promise of the Holy Spirit. Remember, Jesus had told his apostles before he was uh, crucified, he said, I go to prepare a place for you. And where I go, there you shall be with me also. I will come again. But in the meantime, Jesus would say, when I go, I will not leave you comfortless. I will send a comforter. And that comforter is the Holy Spirit who would come in Jesus' place. He would not leave them as orphans. But the Comforter would come and He would guide them into all truth. So He's the Comforter. He instructs or teaches. He guides. And He draws all men unto God by convicting them of sin and righteousness and judgment. And He dwells in the hearts of every believer at the point of salvation. That place where we can say, I was justified by faith on that one moment of time when I said yes to the promises of God through Jesus Christ in the forgiveness of sins. I received that promise and I received that gift of eternal life. I've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. He dwells in me. That promise is what Jesus was talking about. That promise is available to all who would simply receive by faith the Holy Spirit came to redeem souls. Regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are born again. Our spirits have been quickened. We're new creations in Christ. We're more than conquerors because of what He has done. We're overcomers because of our faith in what Christ has done on the cross. And the proof of that lies in the resurrection from the dead. The promise has been delivered. But they hadn't yet seen that. However, shortly after the resurrection, on either the first or second Sunday of that time after the time that he raised from the dead, he had, remember, met with his disciples. And in John's Gospel, we read something of very, very great importance, I believe. He said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. And he breathed on them. I'm convinced that when he said receive the Holy Spirit and having breathed on them, that they received the Holy Spirit. In other words, they were born again. They were quickened at that moment because Jesus gave the Spirit to them while he was still present with them. There are a couple of things we need to know about the presence of the Holy Spirit that we'll see as we move forward in our study in the book of Acts. So I'll just quickly try to remind you of some of the things that we need to be aware of with regard to the Holy Spirit's presence in our life. First of all, there are three prepositional phrases that are used with regard to the Holy Spirit. One is, He will be with you. Jesus told His disciples that. He will be with you. The Greek word is epi. It means 
come alongside. That's what the Holy Spirit is identified as, the paraclete, one who comes alongside. He will be with you. Now that, frankly, is not something new. The Holy Spirit has been present in the world all along from the beginning until this present hour. Jesus also said, the Holy Spirit will be in you. N in the Greek. In, N. It means in, within, inside. So He's going to be with you and He's going to be in you. Now I know that in my own experience, I know that the Holy Spirit was with me before I became a believer. And many of you have said the same thing and know the same thing to be true. But He was never in you until the day that you said yes to Jesus Christ. The last word is upon you. He will come upon you. And that will happen when you need it. He's in you. He's with you. But He comes upon you for service. To enable you. To empower you. To do something for the Lord. And we must remember, the Holy Spirit never does anything in or through us except that it be to glorify Jesus Christ. No other reason would the Holy Spirit do any work except to bring glory to God. That's important because there are so many, many people in the world today who are saying some very, very strange things about the work of the Holy Spirit. And it doesn't point to Jesus Christ when they do. That's a dangerous ground to be on, my friends. But Jesus said, I will Make sure that the promise of the Holy Spirit, Holy Father, has been given to you. Not many days from now. Now, the resurrection had taken place about 40 days prior to this particular gathering. He's about ready to leave. And he's giving him his disciples rather, the very last words before he is ascending into heaven. And take note of the fact that he says in verse 5 again, John, the apostle, no, John, the Baptist, baptized with water. They were all familiar with that. But he says, you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. That word baptized is an interesting word. It's, I, I'm not really sure why we transliterated it into English as baptized. It's a Greek word, baptizo. It means immersed or identified with. And it, it would be better if they had used that phrase to identify with or to immerse into rather than just calling it baptism because there are some areas of confusion with regard to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is not talking about water baptism, but the principle is still the same. In water baptism, we identify with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's again what baptism means. What the baptism of the Holy Spirit is referring to is an immersion or identification with the power of the Holy Spirit to do His will through us. You shall be baptized. I want that. I seek after that. As a matter of fact, Jesus had told His disciples that, look, the Holy Spirit will come. And He wants you to ask for the Spirit. But I already have the Holy Spirit. No, Jesus says, ask still for the Holy Spirit to do more in you than He has already done. Why should we ask? Because Jesus says it's worthwhile for you to ask. I want what God tells me I should ask for. And Jesus specifically told us, ask for the Holy Spirit. He said, your earthly fathers give you good things, don't they? You ask for bread, they don't give you a stone. You ask for an egg, they don't give you a scorpion. 
How much more will your heavenly Father give unto you if you ask? And Luke tells us specifically that Jesus said, if you ask for the Spirit. The Holy Spirit hadn't come into believers at that time. What Jesus was conveying to His disciples is that we should ask for more. We need to be filled and refilled because we leak. Ever see the movie Navigator? I, I, I know this is an aside. It's, it's kind of a chasing rabbits, but it's kind of an interesting comparison. In the book, in the, in the movie Navigator, it's, it's a story about a young boy who was taken into a spaceship and traveled through various galaxies and all over the universe, apparently, and comes back some several years later, and he's dropped off. And he thinks Jimmy Carter is still the president. Well, that happened 11 years prior to that, so it kind of raised some questions. What's been going on with this boy? Well, ultimately, the, the being, I'm not exactly sure, some kind of intelligence got him back into the air, uh, uh, spaceship because he needed the information that was stored in that young boy's brain. Well, there was one time as they were traveling around various places in the world, the young boy said, I've got to, have, I've got to stop. And the navigator, which was a young boy, had to stop. It had to happen. And so the Spaceship stopped, and he was asked the question, Why do you have to stop? And the navigator said, Because I leak. Again, rabbit trail. You can probably disregard all of that. It just came to my mind, and I thought it might be interesting for you to know. But, we do leak. We need to be filled over and over again. The apostles needed to be filled. Several times we will see in the book of Acts, yeah, they were filled on the day of Pentecost, but not very far after that, it tells us they were filled again to do something else. And they were filled again to do something more. The, the, the intent of the Holy Spirit to fill us is to enable us, empower us to do something great for Him, through Him, to the glory of God. Jesus had said that we, His disciples, would do more than He was able to do. Greater things shall you do than I have done, Jesus said. What? Jesus raised people from the dead. Jesus healed the lepers. The eyes were opened. Ears were opened. Lame were able to walk. Jesus says, we're going to do greater miracles than that? he's not talking about the actual miracles themselves. He's talking about the work in general. Because he was limited to a small region in Judea and in Galilee. That was his ministry area. The greater works that we're going to be able to do and are able to do is because of the fact that the church has gone throughout the world. There is a spreading of the gospel, a huge increase in the way that God propagates this message, it's through you and I as believers. Greater works we are doing. It has nothing to do with raising anyone from the dead, although that is a possibility. When Jesus sent His disciples out two by two, they went into various places around the towns in Galilee, and they were given by the Lord the power, the exousia, not just the authority, but the power to do all those miracles. And they came back after a season throughout all the land of Galilee and they were amazed at what God was doing through them. And they spoke to Jesus and look, Jesus, they, they were healed. Right? We, we, we were so amazed. There were so many people that 
we were able to minister to, we did such marvelous things that we could never have done before. Remember Jesus' answer? Don't be so happy about the fact that you were able to do those miracles. Instead, rejoice in the fact that your names are written in the book of life. The miracles that are done in the church, and there have been miracles, there have been wonderful healings that have taken place over the years, but that's nothing compared to what we have in store for us. Let us not focus on the miraculous things that can be done. Let us not focus about those things that some really tend to emphasize in the church. What we need to emphasize is that we've got a home, a city whose builder and maker is God, This is a journey. We're passing through. We're pilgrims. It's not our home. But it's because of the Holy Spirit that we can say so, then that we can trust His ability to keep us and use us during the time that we are here on this earth. That's what this book is all about. Leading back to this passage that we're in. Again, Luke said that he's given them infallible proofs. He's given them the promise of the Father. But we could have none of it if we didn't have power. So he says in verse 6 of chapter 1 of the book of Acts, Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Isn't that interesting that they'd be asking that question? Remember while he was with them before the crucifixion, overlooking the city of Jerusalem, they asked, Lord, you just talked about the fact that the temple would be destroyed. When will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus explained to them in Matthew 24, it's also recorded in Luke 21, that there are going to be things that have to happen. And if they were to look at what he had said back then, they would have to have realized all of what he's talking about is going to be sometime down the road, don't you think? But now, after the resurrection, it's only been 40 days after he was raised from the dead, and they're thinking, now that Jesus is here again, he's returned, we're ready to roll. Let's go back to Jerusalem and let's set up the kingdom. Isn't it time for that, Lord? Oh, if it had been, we wouldn't be here. But he answers again in much the same way that he has always answered them. He says in verse 7, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but this is for you. Listen carefully, he says. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. He's had to repeat this again so they would understand. Hopefully, when the Spirit does come, there's work to be done. And friends, there's still work to be done. As long as we are here, we're here for a reason. Shine the light. There's no other real reason that we're to be here on this earth. Shine the light. Let the Word of God be proven through you. Let the promise of God be received by you so that you can go out in the power of God to demonstrate to the world around us that this gospel is truth and that this truth can set and will set you free if you will only receive it into your heart. You will receive power. Dunamis. That's power. We get our word dynamite from that. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Again, when you were born again, He came in you. He dwells in you. There's no question you have been sealed with that promise that 
God has delivered. But the promise is more than that. It is also that He is with you no matter where you go. And He is upon you when you need it most to demonstrate to those who are around you that you are born again, regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit and willing to convey to all who would hear, all who would ask. Peter says, Hey, listen, be prepared when they ask to give a reason for what you believe. And they will ask because they'll see it in your life if you walk close to God, if you trust in Him and allow Him to do His work in and through you. That's the power that is being spoken of here. It doesn't mean that we have power necessarily to do any miracles or any great thing other than to proclaim the Word of God or to represent Him as His ambassadors and suffer greatly on His behalf. Remember, that's what happened to the apostles. Just a few days after they received the Spirit in a wonderful way on the day of Pentecost, they were put in jail. They were beaten. And they were told, don't speak about Jesus anymore. And Peter stood up and said, listen up, bud. Whether we listen to man or God, you decide. But as for us, we will obey the Lord. You can't beat that. The only thing you can do is put that to death. And then there's more besides. You kill one of us, there are others. You can't stop it. It grows. It will continue to grow. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. Never has, never will. Praise the Lord for this. That's power. That's glorious. That's wonderful. That's majesty. That's God. Many infallible proofs. Receiving the promise. Going forth with that promise in power to do His will. close with the last few verses that I wanted to cover with you today, verses 9 through 11. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. They just witnessed Jesus ascending into glory. What a sight that must have been. Can you imagine what it must have been like for them standing there and seeing him just take off? And then as you're looking into the sky, wondering what's going to happen next, even though he had already told them what's going to happen next, he said, get over to Jerusalem and wait there until you receive that power that he has just described. They're just standing there looking up. I don't think any one of us would have done anything differently than that. It was a miraculous event that had just taken place. Something that had never happened ever before, with only two exceptions. Enoch and Elijah. Of course, the disciples weren't around Enoch or Elijah when they were taken up, but they were there with Jesus when he was, and it was completely unreal to them. They had to be awakened, and so God sent two angels. And one of them apparently again spoke and said, Hey, you guys. Why do you stand up here looking into heaven? It's a good question. What am I doing here? Oh, maybe it was just a dream. Look around. Is there anybody else that saw what I saw? Why are you standing looking up into heaven? This same Jesus 
He had to remind them, that was Jesus. This same Jesus that you saw go into heaven, He's coming back. He is coming back. And He's going to set His feet on the same place from which He ascended. On Mount Zion, apparently. This, this, apparently, this must have taken place. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking around? Men of Searsport, women of Stockton Springs, men of Winterport, Northport, children from Bangor, from Bucksport, why do you stand around? There's work to be done. There's a promise to be received. I want to go where God tells me to go to receive it. I hope you do too. Because it's available to all. Now we're going to cover that next time. But the last thing I want to leave us with is this statement that the angel has made. He will come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. That return is imminent. We looked at that over the last several months. Remember our study in the book of Second Thessalonians and the book of First Thessalonians. We know the Word of God. We have heard, we have been revealing, or it has been revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. This is what we have to look forward to. He's returning. He's coming again. I want to be ready. I want to be found serving Him. I want to be found filled with His Holy Spirit. And over and over again, until He comes, may it be that each one of us would be filled to overflowing so that we can proclaim this wonderful news to a lost and dying world. Let the light shine. Let it shine in Jesus' name. We'll find out next time how it is that we can be enabled to do so. You already know that to be the case because you've been here for so long. You know the truth. Bring somebody with you next time who doesn't. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together. We ask that, Lord, you would move by your Spirit in our hearts as we go from this place, Lord. Let the Word of God penetrate our soul and let us have a stronger desire than ever before to have more of you in our lives. Let us receive that power that you have promised because we have received the promise. And we know that, Lord, we need no more proof than what you have already given. Let us be mindful of these things as we go forward from this place, O God, in the name of Jesus.